0: You're listening to the best of the Sergio show on seven ten K U R V. Here's Sergio. Doctor
1: Larry Lubowski, senior education communications specialist from the Planetary Science Institute based in Arizona. Right, Doctor Larry?
2: That is correct. It's a pleasure. Doctor Larry's what I, I go by when people want to be formal.
1: Okay. <laughs> I um I appreciate you making time to speak with us, sir. I mean, I know you have a bunch of colleagues, and hey, we got this nutcase in South Texas uh, emailing all of us. <laughs> so thank you for making time to speak. No, with us. No, this
2: is not a nutcase. So uh, <laughs> don't worry about that.
1: Hey, um,
2: perfectly happy to talk.
1: Well, tell you, how big does a meteorite need to be, and how fast does it need to be going to okay, make a so
2: one of the one of the things noise. that we need to get straight? Okay, is what we call nomenclature what do we call things yeah so that's true. out in space you have either a meteoroid which is something smaller than about three feet across one meter across right. if it's bigger than that it, we call it an asteroid. Okay.
1: asteroid
2: and then once it enters the earth's atmosphere what we see in the sky we call either a meteor or fireball something like that, depending on how bright it is or a shooting star. Uh, and then if it reaches the ground and you can pick up a piece of it and hold it in your hand, then it's a meteorite. Cool. So it's a meteor, Meteoroid or asteroid in space, meteor, which is the flash of light you see, uh-huh. and then on the ground, if you can pick it up, it's a meteorite.
1: Flash of light or the big booming sound, that what scared everybody and here. The, yeah, the big night.
2: booming sound. Yeah. I'm not an expert in this area, but I think that to hear a sonic boom or something, it has to weigh something on the order of about two pounds, yeah. give or take.
1: From the Planetary Science Institute in Arizona, planetary astronomer Dr. Larry Labowski is my guest. Okay, so last night we get this thing, and until, if somebody finds it, it will we can finally refer to it as a meteoroid because there was something left. So right now what we saw last night was a meteor, heard last night. Was a meteor, and could you again tell me again how big does it need to be uh, in order to make that big pop noise that 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 sonic boom?
2: Approximately, my my impression, my understanding is about uh, two pound two pounds a kilogram. Man, that's is something that will make us give you a sonic boom, something you will hear.
1: Man, that is nothing. Yeah. Well, the uh, produce, my producer Freddie is asking me. So, how fast might it have it? How fast was it going at at one point? Uh, Are you able to guess that?
2: Okay, I actually did look online to see if the International Meteor Association or organization um, saw anything, had any reports, and there weren't any reports that I've seen from last night. Mm -hmm. So um, I can't tell you how fast it was going or how big it was, uh, but basically if it's moving in the same if it's an object in space it's moving in the same direction as the earth is then it can uh, become it can come into the earth's atmosphere as uh slow as about seven miles an hour coming into the atmosphere Mm -hmm. and if it's moving in the opposite direction So it was in an orbit that was the opposite of the Earth's orbit around the sun. It could be going as fast as about 45 miles a second.
1: Well, that pretty much answers what was going to be my next question related to all this. Space junk. All that stuff that is up there, just floating up there, eventually comes down here. Uh, I guess something like that space junk, whether it's a dead satellite or something smaller, a piece of metal just floating around, that could also create... Uh, a sonic boom. If it's going that well, yes. I mean,
2: right? I mean, back in the day when the f- space shuttle was flying, you would get the sonic booms as it uh, passed through the as, as it was going faster than the uh, sound speed of sound. Yeah.
1: How is it possible, Doctor? Oh, by the way, Doctor Larry Labowski, my guest yeah. from the Penetary Science Institute. Doctor Larry, how how do you know that a space rock, a meteorite? Discovered, I don't know, in the north or south pole, or somewhere out there in the sands of Africa. How do you know that something that rock came from Mars? For example, some people say, "Hey, this is this is a Mars rock." How is that possible (laughs) that it came from Mars?
2: So that that's one of the unique things. We've been to two objects in space other than the Earth. We've been to the Moon, and we've been to Mars. On the Moon, we brought back Moon rocks and we saw that the composition of the, of the rocks that came back was similar to some of the meteorites we had in our collections. And similarly with, or sort of similarly with uh, Mars, we've sent spacecraft to the surface of Mars. We've seen the, the rock there, most of it is um, like lava rock. And we've seen in, in the analysis of that rock, We've seen what the composition is, how uh, long ago the lava flow may have been, and similar rocks have been found on Earth. The way we know it, it's probably from Mars, is the fact that one of the rocks early on from, I think, uh, one of the Antarctic expeditions, they actually found trapped carbon dioxide gas, which was similar in composition to the atmosphere of mars so you've got a rock that's about as old as some of the lava flows on mars and it has trapped gas which is similar to the atmosphere of mars that put two and two together and you get four
1: but how do you get it into space was this was this a piece of rock that was jettisoned from the surface as a result of um um meteor uh, strike on the surface, like a, a big puppy that hit Mars and just jettisoned a bunch of stuff into space I, that, and floated?
2: You, yeah, that, yeah, that is correct, a big puppy. Basically, yeah. when the first uh, meteorites were supposedly said, we found the meteorite from Mars, the impact experts said, no, you can't do this. It's impossible. But once you have something in your hand then maybe your calculations were not correct. Mm-hmm. So what they finally determined is that when you have a fairly large impact, maybe making a crater a mile or two across mm-hmm. on, on the surface of Mars, what you do is you're physically punching through the atmosphere of Mars. And for a very brief amount of time, there's a, 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 a almost a vacuum, and you get some material that literally shoots out at fairly high velocities. Um, that's not too shocked so it's not melted or anything like that and that small amount of material then goes into orbit around the sun and over time that material moves closer to the sun and every once in a while because there aren't any stop signs in space it can run into the earth on its way closer into the sun so that's essentially what happens you Blast it off the surface, it just floats up but there don't shock it too much. It yeah. makes it through the atmosphere, goes into orbit around the sun, and eventually runs into That's the Earth. Fascinating. Or we run into That's it
1: cool. from the Planetary Science Institute in Arizona. Senior Education Specialist Dr. Larry A. Lebowski is our guest right now. Talk about that meteor that we experienced last night here in McAllen, South Texas, Mission area. It will become a meteorite if one of y'all find it. And if somebody out there actually finds this thing, uh is it I mean, I was joking about this earlier on the morning show, uh, Dr. Larry. I was saying, "Well, we'll get like like superpowers, right? We'll become the, like the Green Lantern or Superman. We we'll get like some some superpower out of it." But
2: it is a rock. Yeah. Yeah. It's an unusual rock. It's not from the surface of the earth, but it's a rock. Might it's it kill easy. me? Is it it's radioactive, not, not, doc? It, is it radioactive? It's not radioactive. Ah, okay. It is not radioactive and it's not uh, magnetic it's attracted to a magnet Yeah, because it has metal in it
1: yeah it's,
0: it's, As I th-
2: say to people when i do events and i say if you take this rock which is say an iron meteorite and put it on your refrigerator you will break your toe when it falls off
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much that's all that it can be right it's like a heavy metal that survives yeah. the speed and the burning process. That's pretty much all that it could correct.
2: be. correct, yeah. I mean, some of them, the ones from Mars and the ones from the moon, do not contain flakes of metal in them because the objects were large enough, the moon and Mars were large enough, so that all the metal has, uh, when the object was molten, went to the core. So there's an iron core for the... Moon, there's an iron core for Mars, and so you don't see a lot of flakes of metal in them. But for objects like most asteroids, but not all asteroids, most asteroids were never large enough for them to have melted. So when you pick up the meteorite, and and if you cut it, you will see little flakes of uh, sparkly things, which are metal.
1: Is it worth anything? Like somebody willing to pay a bunch of money to... To take it from your hands and you know. Examine
2: so it. you use a term uh, before NWA, which is Northwest Africa. That's a place in in Northwest Africa where it's a big desert, so a lot of meteorites are found. Um, most of them are what are called ordinary chondrites, and there there there's a lot of them, tons and tons and tons. So there was just the Gem and Mineral Show here in Tucson, Arizona, and um from the dealers there you can pay maybe um I'm using metric terms because I that's what I know better so about 10 cents 20 cents 30 cents a gram and so what's a 25 grams to ounce so a couple of a couple of dollars an ounce basically wow, they're very common, so not they're not horribly expensive yeah. but uh, once you start getting unusual looking ones or ones from mars or ones from the moon then they can be um, 100 times more expensive or more. Cool. So, yes, they're, yeah. they, they can be worth a lot more. And they're also a lot more when uh, you've seen them fall from the sky. And there's actually two examples of that in the last, to my math, three weeks. Because there's uh, a meteoroid that was seen to fall, and meteorites were collected in uh, Muskogee. Oklahoma on January 20th, and just yesterday, there was uh, an object that was seen uh, in space as an asteroid. It was followed for like three or four hours. They calculated where it went into Earth's atmosphere, and sure enough, it was seen as a fireball, a bright uh, meteor over um, southern England and over uh, France, and um, just yesterday, um, some meteorites were found.
1: Cool. If Hollywood style, it, like let's say Armageddon or I forget uh, Deep Impact or Final Impact or whatever that uh, like the movies back like ten years ago, were dealing with right. this issue. Uh, what is the what is the maximum size meteor? that NASA, Defense Department, anybody else could work to either try to move or blow up because, and I'm questioning the whole blow up thing because being solid metal I don't think they could blow up something like that but what what type, what can we defend ourselves from in space to try to redirect or blow up if we were dedicated to do something like that?
2: The one thing that most of those movies did get right is that you do not want to blow them up Uh if you blow them up um a lot of times they're, they're rubble piles, and so they're just bunches of smaller things because they've been impacted when they're in space. So instead of one object um, maybe uh, a few miles across, you get tens of thousands of smaller ones, and their total the total energy of them coming through the Earth's atmosphere is going to be the same.
1: They're <laughs> wow. just going to be
2: spread out more. So it's like, you know, do you get hit by a bullet yeah. or do you get hit by uh shot
1: from machine a gun meteor it's coming from you, yeah. you from all so, over I mean, the place yeah, wow. so what
2: you wanna do is hopefully find it early enough that you can nudge it out of its way yeah and that's what uh, the dart uh mission was was doing, which is how much energy can you impart onto the thing and move it a little bit like you would yeah. gently hitting up a, a a uh
1: uh, my mind's going blank a uh, okay well, I nudge it a,
2: a ball of some sort yeah yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I know I kept you over time dr Larry I really appreciate no, no, all that's the time fine. Uh, dr. Larry Lebowski, he's with the planetary Science Institute and, and uh, we're, I'm learning as as well as you all uh, thanks for tuning in to K we're learning about this uh, meteor ore uh, you know popped in the atmosphere last night <laughs> woke up everybody in McAllen mission like, what in blazes is that it will become a meteoroid. If one of y'all find it. And I know, say, it's
2: the meteoroid in space.
1: Yeah. And uh, if they and find it. And a meteorite. Meteorite. All right. Meteoroid in space and meteorite and on, on the ground. I want to say thank you to one of our listeners and a dear friend, Ludi. Uh, she gave me a link to the American Meteor Society. And these Correct. folks, these folks would like to take that rock, that rock and metal, and... What do they do with it? What do they examine? What, why do they want it? Will they pay something for it if somebody finds it?
2: Well, the, there's the International Meteorite Collectors Association, and there's, and there's another organization. And um, there are the association doesn't do anything, but individual um, meteorite dealers will, um, if they go out in the field and hunt for them, they will then uh, either sell it as, as a whole object or make, cut it into slices and sell the slices. Cool. Or, but in any case, what they must do is to send a small portion of it about an ounce to a reputable uh, organization, a university or someplace that can do an analysis of the, of the meteorite. Then they can classify it and actually physically give it a name.
1: Thank you, Dr. Larry. Be safe, and hopefully I don't have to call you too often with these things Oh, that's fine. <laughs> coming I have no the problem hemisphere.
2: whatsoever, especially if there are um, people with questions I can try to answer. But the, the, may I say one thing, having... I, I watch a lot of science fiction movies, and in all of them they show these things coming in at huge velocities. They don't do that. They basically... Um, come in very, very fast, but they hit the Earth's atmosphere. When they hit the Earth's atmosphere, they will slow down to the point where they literally just, like, plunk, fall on the ground at a couple hundred miles an hour. So, terminal velocity. Yeah, that's cool. So, um, you've got to get really, really, really big. I'm not sure what the exact size before they sort of go you know, to yeah. the, excuse my expression, yeah. to the atmosphere and just uh-huh. smash into the ground. But most yeah. of the things that are even a few hundred pounds or more will slow down to the point where they they will just sort of fall to the ground and just be affected a little bit a little, by the atmosphere. Little, a
1: yeah. little piece of trivia that it was, you know, how information is just, it's everywhere online. There was a claim that there was only like one reported death of somebody getting hit by something falling from space. Like a rock or something. Is I'm that not true? even
2: sure if that's right. true. Um, in the past, there have been, you know, you know, myths and legends and biblical stories, and it's possible some of them happened. And there was a large event in early in um, in Alaska uh, hundred ten years ago, but even that was so. Uh, remote that I, even then I, I'm not sure yeah, there are I'm, any real reported deaths. Yeah. People have been hit by them once in a while. Again, yeah. no, maybe that's no what i was referring. To,
1: somebody that, actually getting hit by. Yeah, you probably have a better chance of winning Powerball, billion-dollar Powerball. Than actually, getting hit by one of these things. That is,
2: but probably it could be worth more to be hit by one than it is to win the Powerball, but we won't go there.
1: Thank you, Dr. Larry. It's a pleasure. From the Planetary Science Institute in Arizona, Dr. Larry Lubofsky, this is The
0: Sergio Show. K U R V. You're listening to the best of the Sergio show. Here's Sergio. I'm making a new foodie
1: friend. Trinity Groves has more than a dozen restaurants and dessert shops. Julian Rodarte is the leader for Trinity Groves, right, Julian? Absolutely. All right, Trinity Groves. I understand was a a restaurant concept that's almost what's well, ten years old now, and it was. Uh, it great, is. It's, yeah, uh,
4: it's ten years old. It stood the test of time.
1: The famous Phil Romano uh, of Fuddrucker fame and Romano's Macaroni Grill and Eatsies. Uh, that's that's the one who created and helped create Trinity Grows. So you got to tell me that story. How you guys came about.
4: Yeah, so actually, uh, I kind of come from a long, res- uh, long line of uh, restaurant people in my family. My father actually opened a restaurant with uh, Phil Romano about 30 years ago in San Antonio, Texas, called Cozy Meals. Uh, when uh, they created that concept together, it uh, went really well, and uh, they ended up selling it to Brinker, who owned Chili's, and uh, ended up buying Macaroni Grill from Phil as well. And um, <clears throat> anyways, did really well for themselves. So That's good. when uh, Phil was doing this kind of restaurant concept, I was actually uh, you know, just getting out of culinary school. I'd been in the industry for ten years, just graduated, uh kind of got my degree and uh Phil was looking for uh, some more chefs to kind of take over some spots. So reached out to my dad. Um, you know, he they had stayed in touch throughout the years and mm. um, you know, fast forward six going on seven years now, um, kind of running the whole uh, the whole property and creating new restaurants on a on a month to month basis almost.
1: Your restaurants, your Trinity Groves, your locations. Uh, where where do you have most of your um, sites
4: Yeah so they're all at Trinity Groves in West Dallas right across the uh, Margaret Hunt okay. Hill Bridge so I have to right it just up. outside of downtown we're literally 5 minutes from downtown um and uh basically uh we we pretty much have uh like you said about 12 um 12 different uh restaurant spots uh okay. and and two um dessert retail huh. shops uh and you know anything from Mexican to Chinese to Italian to American you know, pizza even a beer garden uh so a little bit of everything kind of a restaurant theme park if you will
1: okay uh, i called you to ask you about the price of eggs and what that does to your menu i'm learning about trinity groves i have to i have to look for them. the next time I'm up in dallas I, I need to go look for y'all and uh, check out yeah, your please, please. check out your menu julian rodarte he's with trinity groves yeah, they're about 10 years old and they got a dozen sites up in in North Texas. Okay, so let's get to the price of eggs since you have, man, you got everything, international fair, Chinese food, Mexican food, and all that stuff on there. So how does the exorbitant price of eggs, how's that working into your you know, margins and, and your pricing formula? Oh,
4: it's huge. I mean, uh, you know, restaurants already work on thin margins. Uh, I mean, and then also there's, you know, the perspective of the guests. They, they come into my Mexican restaurant, uh, Beto and Son, and, they, uh, you know, see uh, the price of a, of a breakfast taco. I mean, most people are used to, used to paying a dollar, maybe two. Um, but, you know, eggs themselves almost cost a dollar. So obviously that jacks up my cost, right? So what's interesting about eggs, though, is it, it touches so many different aspects of the menu. So, you know, throughout the year, different prices raise. You know, beef prices will go up. Uh, so we look and say, hey, sell more chicken and fish. Um, you know, produce might go up. Um, you know, like avocados from Mexico, right? There's always different times of the year that they're higher and lower. But this is the first time where an item like eggs um, that just touches everything, whether it be a scramble or an omelet or, you know, batter in some kind of fried item, pancakes and uh, French toast. I mean, there's there's so many items that eggs touch. Um, And so for the first time, we're seeing this affect almost the entire menu because of one item.
1: So do you find... Your restaurants, different restaurants, mom and pop shops, national chains, they all react to this differently. Uh, what do you guys do? Absolutely. Reduce the size of portions? Do you increase uh, menu items by a quarter? I mean, uh, how do you balance this out? Or do you swallow it, waiting for for inventories to improve? Because uh, there was this USDA report that said that at the end of last year, like in December, the inventory for eggs was closer to a third, one third lower. And that led to about a 200 percent spike and the price of eggs so what do you do in the interim how long do you hold out and what's the plan over at your place
4: no it's exactly what you you try to do is you try to hold out as long as you can obviously it's a very competitive industry um the last thing you want to be to do is, is react too soon and kind of be the first one to jack up your prices and you know other people see other places that are uh you know with with uh, cheaper prices and go there instead um but at the end of the day with with the uh razor thin you know margins that restaurants have uh, there's only so long you can hold out. You know? So um, you know, it's, it really becomes a day-to-day uh, kind of thing when, when you order eggs on Monday, the price on Saturday could be much higher. Um, so you, you almost have to monitor it on a day-to-day aspect and, and seeing kind of what those prices are. Um, and then, and then you know, kind of uh, really run the numbers and, and see, you know, do, do I have uh, you know, those, uh, the, those margins that can take the hit right now? Um, how long can I take the hit for? And, uh, you know, if not, what's, what's an increase that hopefully the customers will feel comfortable taking um, and not feel like they're uh, being passed on too much of the burden to themselves?
1: Julian Rodarte, my guest, he's with Trinity Groves. They're in North Texas, and it's a restaurant business. they got a dozen locations up in North Texas. They're about 10 years old, and as I mentioned at the beginning, birth, uh, it's, this is the concept. Uh, Phil Romano from Romano's Macaroni Grill and, uh, you know, Phil Romano from— Fuddruckers family, working with Julian's family, and they created these restaurants. And we're talking about, you know, price of eggs, how it works into everything else. Uh, how much longer are you going to wait? Six months? A year? Because, you know, chickens lay eggs pretty fast. Maybe we can get that inventory up you know, pretty fast here and, and improve the price of eggs.
4: Yeah, no, 100%. And, uh, you know, I should. I, I wish I could wait six months. I, I think it's going to be probably a little bit less than that. But um, I will say, you know, pricing, is it seems to be at a plateau. Um, even seems to be maybe a, a dollar cheaper here and there, so it does look like things are getting better. Um, that's which is yeah. is great, um, but obviously it, prices have gone so so far up that you know it it being a dollar less than what it was a week ago, it's still
1: high. <laughs> Can you go international, or does the does the industry the egg producer do they go international, start bringing eggs in from Mexico or some other place like that?
4: You know, when it comes to, to eggs, uh, it, it mainly is all domestic. Uh, you know, it really is a, a domestic thing as far as, uh, you know, w- with, with eggs. And, you know, even with the shortages that we have, um, you know, it's, it's really just driving the, the prices up. The good thing is we can still get eggs. Um, so eggs are still, uh, you know, something that we have access to um and you know it it being a uh, more of a domestic thing and, and not something that okay. you know we're really getting over yeah. overseas Hey man um, I've got
1: yeah, about I mean, I've got about 30 seconds I, just, I need to ask you this real quick cuz you mentioned the yep. Brinker Brinker group and I last time I had them we were talking about uh, personnel So real quick we're going like in 10 15 seconds on uh, the employment side yep. personnel help wanted ha- has that improved for you are you able to get the people hire the people that you need
4: No you know it has it has rebounded uh, quite a bit Good. So, thankfully um that is one thing that you know they're coming back obviously with inflation they need to make money and they're definitely well, there you go work, so that's <laughs> there
1: you thing. go got to buy some eggs as well as a good old, let's go yep. as well get a wait i would go cook something in the kitchen thank you julian it's a pleasure look them up in north texas trinity groves that's julian rodarte
0: this is the sergio show You're listening to the best of The Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Our Central Texas Congressman
1: Patriot Chip Roy joining us on The Sergio Show. Headed to the border, I understand. Where are you going to today, Congressman?
5: Yeah, I'm driving down uh, to Eagle Pass. Um coming out of San Antonio here shortly, but I'm uh, going to go down and visit with some friends down there and Border Patrol, some ranchers, and just get an update. and try to get down every, you know, every couple months, just just to make sure they know we're uh, we're with them and we're going to keep fighting for them and for border security and for this country.
1: Yeah, I know that you visit regularly with ranchers, farmers near the U.S.-Mexican border. Just, best you can, just give me a summary. What do you hear from them, some of the stories that you hear from these folks on the front lines?
5: Well, I mean, particularly from the ranchers, right? I mean, even just, you know, I, I get daily or certainly weekly, you know, updates from some of our friends down there about, you know, another group of migrants that have cut a hole in a fence, another bailout where, you know, there's there's a, a damage to a fence line and livestock gets out. A, another situation where, you know, there's a break into a house and stuff stolen or, you know, guns stolen or, or we'll find a stash of guns um, that, that have been, you know, held there or whatever. And then, you, you know, you see these night cameras and you see like large uh, groups of people moving across ranches. People don't feel safe ranchers that have been families for 150 years, they're thinking about selling their ranches. Um, and that's all just a direct impact on them. I mean, besides then, all of the danger of the people pouring into our country, uh, that we don't know who they are and the fentanyl and, and uh, the consequences of an open border. And obviously, our Border Patrol friends are just overrun, you know, being mistreated by an administration that accuses them of whipping when they knew full well it wasn't true those kinds of things and so again i I go down to try to show support as well as get new information and new examples
1: congressman chip roy my guess so what's taking place up in dc on a you know air quotes bipartisan basis to address this issue either in providing more equipment money personnel for border patrol and if so i mean is it actually going to enforce border law or is it going to be the welcome wagon? i mean what what can you tell me from a a washington dc perspective
5: Anything right now, for the most part, that you see as "quote bipartisan" is nothing more than spend more money to process more people, which will make the situation worse, empower cartels, endanger Americans, and continue to endanger migrants. Because unfortunately, those talking about "quote bipartisan" solutions refuse to acknowledge the need to actually change the policies that are causing the magnet, that are causing the situation, which is releasing people, which is ignoring existing law and releasing people into the United States without having had a full adjudication of a claim by misusing existing law, parole laws, notice to appears with respect to asylum claims, rather than full adjudication. Those things are all causing the flood of people at the border. That's why you have 8,000 a day instead of 1,000 or fewer a day, and, or, or, or something better than that, to be honest. So this is what we have to focus on, again, More money to process more people will not improve it, it will make it worse. So, let's be very clear when we're talking about changing the release policies, that is border security, that is the definition of border security because you're actually enforcing the law. That's what we need to fight for in Washington,
1: Congressman Chip Roy, my guest on the Sergio show. I'm sure you saw a few days back that little report. Said that we have seen a like an eight hundred percent increase in Chinese nationals trying to get into this country, and because they come from China, I guess they're not from these other nations where some of these individuals might be booted back to Mexico because of um, present you know border patrol policy as as spurred by the White House. Seems like all these folks that come in from China are able to stay and game the asylum system. Just want to get your thoughts on where we stand right now on this. Um, asylum system mess that we have?
5: Well, this is one of the situations that everybody in this country, but particularly the border community in Texas, need to fully understand. We have people from over 150 countries. Uh, I think 161 was the last list I saw. We had an Iranian caught in the trunk of a car just a few weeks ago. You just explained the extent to which we are seeing a vast increase in the number of Chinese nationals. We have people from all over the world knowing they can come into South America, come into Mexico, work their way up, find a port of entry, or frankly just come across and come up and claim asylum, or take advantage of the fact. And this is the important part because too many of my Democrat colleagues in the media they try to hide behind saying, "Oh, uh, you know the real problem is at the ports of entry, like fentanyl, for example." But what they forget is border patrol agents are taken off the line. Those border patrol agents are put into processing facilities to process these people claiming asylum or just showing up and and being processed regardless of their claim. And that leaves the area between the ports of entry wide open. And that is where still there's unknown numbers of individuals and gotaways, unknown amounts of fentanyl pouring in. Yes, there's a lot of stuff coming in at the ports of entry, but our agents are even distracted there. Even at the ports of entry I've been to, even at the checkpoints coming up into the United States, you only stop one in 10 trucks, for example, at the checkpoint I went to the last time I visited one not long ago. And so you're you're kind of going, well, you're not actually having full force of Border Patrol at the border because they're distracted due to the asylum flood that you just described.
1: With fentanyl and other deadly drugs being trafficked by the cartels and, of course, the sex trade, slavery, and you know indentured servants of the day that owe thousands of dollars to smugglers, kidnappings in Mexico, wholesale ownership of so-called law enforcement in Mexico at the local level, state level, and federal level. Why is it, Congressman Chip Roy, why is it that our government is so apprehensive all these years we've been we've been delaying this decision. We need to designate cartels as terrorists. Why is it we haven't done so today, Congressman?
5: Well, it's a great question. Uh, I introduced legislation uh, two, three years ago to uh, do that. I thought it would be important to recognize the extent to which cartels are engaged daily in terrorizing uh, both our friends to the South and Mexico as well as Americans, right, by virtue of purposely flooding the zone with fentanyl. Uh, you know, uh, flooding human beings in for profit uh, to the danger of them and Americans, Uh, and and increasingly being involved with threats across the border of politicians in South Texas and having their fingers uh, and tentacles reaching up into gangs. Uh, There's a lot of activity within the United States connected to cartel activity uh, and, and their relationships there. So I believe you should designate them as terrorists. But look, there are different ways to go about it. I've got a number of my colleagues introducing different measures. A couple of colleagues introduced a measure to authorize the use of military force against the cartels uh, without designating them as terrorists. And that's that's a potentially decent path to go down. I don't honestly care so long as we're making sure we're recognizing the threat, we are defining the threat, and we are taking out the threat. That's what I care about. They are a threat. They are a clear and present danger to the United States, our well-being, our safety, our national security, and the health of the American people. They are a clear and present danger to our uh, friends in uh, the rest of the Western Hemisphere. They are undermining our economic security. They are empowering China. They are endangering (laughs) our economy and our well-being, and we should should, uh, approach it that
1: way. Yeah, well, speaking of economic security, I can just imagine, Congressman... Chip Roy, Central Texas Congressman, he's headed to the border, headed to Eagle Pass, and I appreciate his call to the program right now. But I can just imagine what it must be like, Chip. Imagine a scenario where cartels – and see, I am convinced that folks in federal law enforcement and state law, they know who the – commanders are, the sergeants, the lieutenants, who live in first world paradise, the United States of America. They have homes and shell companies here, and they got bank accounts, and they're sending their kids to local schools. And I can just imagine the nightmare scenario for them, where they're all designated as terrorists. They know who they are, seize assets, homes, bank accounts, the the shell companies, the uh, local businesses are using to launder all that. Gas, seize all of that. I can just imagine what it would mean to South Texas or border economy if something uh, like that were to actually be enforced by a, f- a federal government. And, and since all these people, since we know who they are, I'm convinced that we know who they are. They're just monitoring these individuals. All these commanders, lieutenants, and sergeants living on the U.S. side. These people would be on the no-fly list. It would be a nightmare scenario. It'd be all-out war with these people. I, I, I can just imagine what a a, a terrorist designation would mean for these individuals if we were courageous enough to do something like that? Or do we dare move there because it might turn into a nasty firefight on the U.S. side as a result? What do you think?
5: Well, the the most important thing is first to recognize the threat and take the action to deal with it. And if you take the step of designating them as terrorist organizations or equivalent, you call them something else, But if you ensure that our law enforcement community have the tools to treat them as such, cut off their financial support, be able to uh, undermine the trafficking that they engage in by by treating them at the level that we're talking about, if you recognize them as either terrorists or equivalent, then we can uh, undermine them and root them out and then make decisions about when and how to use military force, et cetera. But we have to treat them as the Clear and present danger that they are and then act accordingly and our friends in Mexico need to get a little religion about (laughs) understanding that their state of being and allowing a narco terror state to entrench itself in their country is a danger to us as well so let's work together let's work together to root that out for the betterment of America and Mexico and the rest of the Western hemisphere and that's what i, I
1: think is critically important. amigo let me tell you something chip we got no friends in mexico we got no they're happy the way things are their their pockets fattening up lining up all these politicians these people who shake your hands and say oh for economic development purposes for cross border trade purposes they're all happy getting their pockets fattened up with cartel money, we ain't got no friends in Mexico. I-, I think the day we realize that, that's we take a first step towards solving the problem. Chip Royer, congressman, uh, joining us right now. and I just want to get your thoughts real quick before I let you go, uh, congressman. Uh, We've got a local Democrat, uh, Vicente Chente Gonzalez. He's been trying for the longest time to get uh, U.S. veterans that were booted from the country. They served our country, they got all PTSD, and started driving drunk and messed up. It got booted from the country. He's, he's trying to weed those out and get them back in, give them U.S. citizenship. Have you spoken with him at all about this uh, repatriation of patriots idea that that he's had through the years?
5: I have not. Uh, that That's something that I, I uh, would be happy to talk to him about and, and try to figure out the contours of it. I mean, obviously, there's some complications involved with all that, but, yeah. but we want to make sure that... That veterans are treated appropriately and, and, um, and deal with it, but I'm happy to talk to him that day about that.
1: Yeah, First thing, I've been trying to get him back on the show. First, if you sp- speak with him, first thing, ask him, why didn't you try really hard during the, the Democrat-controlled Congress to get this thing passed? Well, maybe now we can get some, you know, even-keeled, common-sense people to come together and maybe find some of those people that deserve to come back in. Congressman, thank you again for your visit to the border. Keep in touch. Uh, we wish you the best. You, you be safe out there.
5: All right. Take care, Sergio.
1: Congressman Chip Roy, joining us, he's on the way to the board to the eco-pack. This is the Sergio Show.
0: News Talk Seven Ten KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Break in. Break in. news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Means it's happening now. We mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710. KURV means we're bringing you the news a- as it happens. We have a active shooter multiple gunshot In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710, KURV and KURV.com. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio.
1: Heads up, mom and dad. Check this out. According to the Journal of the American Medical Association, Gemma, there were 8814 overdose deaths from fentanyl and synthetic opiates, 2021. That 884 number I gave you was up from 2020, where there were 680 in 2020. And check this out, only 253 in 2019. So these numbers have skyrocketed. An expert in addiction helping people kick bad stuff, Kimberly Schuler from Sabino Recovery, my guest again. Kim, what do parents need to know about this deadly stuff right now?
3: But it's everywhere. Thank you for having me. But, yeah, it's everywhere. It's, it's um, on every drug that anybody's touching these days.
1: And what's so scary about this, when you say it's everywhere, oh, God forbid, I'm, I'm thinking of campuses, schools, high schools, junior high. I mean, we got a rash of, of deaths in a couple of parts here in Texas over the past several months where kids have, I don't know what they've been touching, but it, it doesn't take very much of this fentanyl. No, to, two, yeah.
3: two grains of sand worse.
1: That's tell Yeah, I've been telling, like, I got a 15-year-old, and you know, in high school I tell him, boy, you better... Some kid gives you something to eat, especially a stranger. Even your friends. The rule, the standing rule in, in my house is: do not eat anything. Do not touch anything given to you, even by your friends. Say no thanks. Just pass. I mean, I, I, it's, That's a great rule. I, you just, you don't just, you never know where it's coming from because there ain't no going back after after you get poisoned by by something like this. Well, can you imagine what this is doing to? Uh, like emergency response and ERs and hospitals and all these cases rushing at them, it's like, what is that? That um, is it? Narcan? Is that what it is? The the one that uh, yeah. would counter the effect of an opiate? Yeah, Narcan. Yeah, man. We I remember the the conversations years ago with lawmakers. We need to put defibrillators in all campuses and public buildings. Defibr. It's like we need Narcan at all campuses yeah. now. It seems <laughs> to overcome all this. Yep. Goodness.
3: Absolutely.
1: So, I mean, is that something that I don't know? Maybe lawmakers should consider <laughs> the, the fact. Yeah, is-
3: and I know that it's on the table. So, having Narcan be available to more people in the community is definitely something that um, state are talking about. And also providing fentanyl testing strips—that's something that's on the table as well, which I think are. Obviously, two great places to start, but I think that, more importantly, we need to continue to educate our teens, our children, even our friends and family around us, continue to talk about what's happening and make sure that everybody has all the right information. Obviously, abstinence is going to be the safest route.
1: We had in the news a repetition of a headline from U of H, University of Houston. A few weeks back, it popped into the news, and I had it, uh, my friend had it in the news this morning again. A a vaccine for fentanyl, for opiates. I don't know how the thing works. They explained it to the news report. Man, we can't get that thing, that vaccine. We can't get that to market fast enough to try to save some people, save some uh, young kids from getting exposed to this. Uh, Kimberly Schuler from Sabino Recovery joining us. We're talking about fentanyl overdose deaths related to fentanyl and synthetic opiates just skyrocketing. Back in 2019, I told you about 250 deaths in our nation. In 2019, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, over 880 just number that number shot up so mom and dad you need to be careful you need to have that talk with your teens about not eating or consuming anything provided to them by I say in my opinion even by friends at high school you don't know where that crap has been Uh, even it could be a cookie or or some innocent little pill or something or lick something you just never know what it is of all the Kimberly of all the cases that you see you being an addiction expert of all the cases that you see, you people that you work with, how many of, of those cases involve individuals addicted to, you know, painkillers, synthetic opiates?
3: Um, probably 65 to
1: 70%. Seven out of ten. Can How many people kick the habit eventually?
3: I think everybody can. You just got to get the right treatment. You got to get the right support group. But everybody's capable.
1: They're capable. I mean, be honest with you. Recidivism. How many people come back? One third? One half? Three fourths? Let's be realistic. I'm, I'm, how many people fall off the wagon again? Yeah,
3: realistic. I
1: would say about fifteen percent. Fifteen percent fall fall off the wagon. Fifteen. Correct. That's pretty good. That's it's pretty good. good. So, so, what's the key to overcome this? Crud? Is it is it some uh, is it other pharmaceuticals, other drugs to no, to blunt the bad. pain or what?
3: Finding the source of your desire to numb what you're feeling. So get the right treatment, get the right support group around you, and you are off the races.
1: And for anyone who knows somebody fighting these demons, addiction recovery is something that's covered by insurance in most cases, right?
3: It can be, absolutely. They're great resources that insurance will help
1: cover. If somebody needs help and is on the job listening to us right now, they there's a certain degree of protection for them. If they come clean, come forward and tell HR, I got a problem. I need help. And in most cases, most employers will work with them, right? Or they're obligated to work with them. Which one is it?
3: Every company set up a little bit differently, but yeah, they would likely be willing to work with them um, and create some boundaries and some steps for the employee. But yes, yeah, employers should be flexible enough to allow their employee to get the treatment that they need.
1: Because it's a medical condition that would need to be treated. That's that's how it's classified. Okay. Anything that's else true. you want folks to know about all this stuff okay, before I let you go?
3: Just talk about it. Make sure that everybody has all the right information. If you are loved ones struggling, please reach out. Tons of resources, crisis, mental health crisis lines. Um, Sabino's always there, sabinorecovery.com. Happy to help in any way that we can.
1: All right, Kim. She's in the business, the calling in her life to help out, help out folks who are addicted to well, these pharmaceuticals. Kimberly Schuler from Sabino Recovery. Thanks, Kim. This is The Sergio Show.